Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be here, verse 5 to 25, so I'll, I'll read and you can read along. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service had, uh, was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Wonderful. Well, can we have the next slide up? Hopefully it all, uh, all works seamlessly. And if it doesn't, I'll just crack on anyway. Oh, there we go. Brilliant. And then the next one. Fantastic. Oh, one back. There we go. Fantastic. Right. Does anyone know what that is? Eye of the storm, yeah, that's the eye of a hurricane seen from the ground. Quite a rare, rare photograph to find. Um, and the weird thing about hurricanes is the bit in the middle, the eye of the hurricane, is completely still. And people who aren't used to hurricanes, probably like me, because I've never been in one, you know, that would happen, and you'd come out and go, oh, let's light up the barbecue, <laughs> you know. And then I would see an approaching bank of cloud and go, oh, what's that? And suddenly, 150-mile-an-hour <laughs> winds would sweep me off my feet. Uh, well, next slide. If we can, that's what it looks like from space, the next one. Um, if you want one image for this day's passage, it's this. A 400-year-long eye of the hurricane passes. That is what this is, that's what's happening here. Uh, an eerie silence, God's voice and action, after an eerie silence, God's voice and action suddenly become manifest again in a really magnificent way. 400 years. Let's try and take in how long that is. 
400 years ago was 1621. And in the time between then and now, we've had the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the French revolution, the American revolution, World War I, World War II, Napoleon, the Cold War, and both World Cups that we won, including <laughs> rugby. So a lot happens in 400 years. You can imagine that period of time, God being silent amongst God's people. You know, people would be getting you know, twitchy by then, wouldn't they? So for 400 years of science um, preceded our passage today. It's what we call the intertestamental period. So the Old Testament finishes with Malachi around 400 BC, and this is the very first chronological instance of the New Testament. Obviously, the New Testament starts with Matthew, but Luke 1 is the first chronological uh, event that occurs around 7 BC, 6, 7 BC, thereabouts. And in that intervening 400-year gap, there is no prophecy. Even Jewish historians at the time, like Josephus, point this out. They go, that was weird. <laughs> There's a 400-year gap, you know, with an eerie long silence. And it wasn't the first time this had happened in Scripture either. Well, um, rewind 1,200 years, and we have the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, and the promises made to Abraham and the patriarchs that we talked about here. Uh, Abraham made 400 years before, seemed like a distant memory, and God didn't seem to be up to anything. And then suddenly after 400 years, Moses come, God saves his people. So in this passage, uh, next slide please, thank you, um, history rhymes, history repeats itself. We have a 400 year period of silence and tension, and it suddenly comes to an end with deliverance and breakthrough. In 1200 BC, the victim, the, the victim was, was the Israelite slaves in Egypt, the enemy was Egypt and Pharaoh. The rescue came through Moses, assisted by Aaron and Miriam. The goal was a homeland in Canaan, established through the Ten Commandments and the law. In 6 BC, here in this passage, the Jews thought their enemy was Rome, that the rescue was going to come through a promised Messiah, probably some kind of warlord, assisted by and preceded by John the Baptist in this passage. The Jews thought that the goal was going to be a resurgent, independent nation-state of Israel, probably through some great uprising, some great national uprising. But their expectations were, well, they weren't just wrong, they were too small. They were too small. The, the real enemy was deeper and more ancient than either Egypt or Rome. It was sin, Satan, death, and suffering, the whole lot. The goal wasn't a resurgent nation-state, it was a redeemed, created order. It was the whole world. It wasn't geographic in scale. It was cosmic and universal. So this passage is the first salvo of that, that first salvo, the first gust of wind that blows after the eye of the storm. So that's the big picture of what's going on. That's the big, big cosmic scale. Let's zoom in now and have a look at the more personal scale of what's happening to this guy, Zechariah, in the temple. Well, we're told in verse 6 that he's a man of great integrity and faith, but despite his integrity and faith, he and his wife are childless. They're unable to have children. Now, many years ago, I was talking to a woman uh, from this church who for years had been trying to have children, and she'd recently just had a miscarriage. And as we do in church, we make small talk with one another, and as we're talking, she was trying to, to talk, but you could just see the, the tears building up on the eyelids. Um, and... The experience of childlessness was, was almost more than she could bear. As it happens, the last time I preached on this very passage, a passage about a long-awaited child suddenly coming long after they'd given up hope, uh, that same week uh, she gave a testimony in church, just having had a 24-week scan for a baby girl. 
and uh, her joy was contagious, and we all felt very protective <laughs> over this little girl. And it was a very apt testimony for my sermon, I thought. So, thanks. <laughs> so, um, so as uh, Zechariah is standing there in the temple, an angel appears on the right. Blah. You know, you can imagine. Now, before we go on to look at what he says, what, what the angel says, take note of where the angel's standing. He's standing, verse 11, on the right side of the altar. That puts him next to something called the bread of the presence, which you can see here. That's what it looked like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it looked like. But it's only actually the bread of the presence. Now, many scholars believe that the layout of the temple was Trinitarian in its form. So at the back of the, at the, back of the temple, you had a curtain, which is this dust sheet here. Um, and that separated the rest of the world, essentially, from the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. And that was like the core of a nuclear reactor. You don't go in there because that's where the pure blazing holiness of God is, uh, God the Father. So that's sort of symbolized by the curtain. On the right, we have a lamp, which is conveniently in the same place as the uh, Advent candles here. So this is our lamp. And uh, scholars think that that represents the Holy Spirit. And then um, over here, sorry, on your left, <laughs> on the right, uh, we have um, the bread of the presence. And what did... Jesus break on the Last Supper. He broke bread. This is my body given for you. He called himself the bread of life in the book of John. And he was born in a town called Bethlehem. Does anyone know literally what Bethlehem means? City of bread. City of bread. Interesting. You see, even down to where the angel stands, it's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus, which is really cool. In verse 13, he tells Zechariah that he and his wife will give birth to a son in old age, and that the child will be called John. In verse 17, we're told that he's going to get a people ready for the coming of the Lord. So next slide. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist is like Jesus' sapper. Does anyone know what a sapper is? A sapper is a special kind of soldier who's... Um, it's a special soldier that, that prepares the battlefield for the main force to follow behind. Um, their job isn't to win the battle. It's to just dutifully, humbly go about removing mines, removing barbed wire and obstacles so that the main force can advance more easily on favorable terms. So John is Jesus' sapper. And by the time that Jesus begins his ministry, the battlefield was prepared. People were hungry. They had been taught by John about turning back to the Lord, and now they were going to see the Lord himself veiled in human flesh. So what's Zechariah's reaction? His reaction is bewilderment. You know, how can this be? How can this be? I, I'm old, my wife is old. And the angel knew that the first miracle baby born to elderly parents since Abraham was a big deal. The, the angel knew this. He knew that the first prophet-like figure born in 400 years, that's a big deal. He knew that the promise, a mysterious promise of John preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, that was also mysterious. So he, like a spiritual GP, he, he writes out a prescription for nine months of silence, nine months of muteness. You know, this is a lot for you, John. Uh, sorry, this is a lot for you, Zechariah. Um, just, um, here, here you go. Just drink it in. Be quiet. Take it in. Digest it. And behold the marvelous things that God is doing. For 400 years... God has been silent, and you've been talking. Now God is talking. It's your turn to be silent. 
After getting home, Zechariah probably has to play an interesting game of Pictionary with his wife to <laughs> explain everything. Then they have conjugal relations, I assume. And then, behold, Elizabeth falls pregnant. Then she uh, struts into Southmead Hospital, goes up to the reception. Hello, dear. Are you looking for the geriatric ward? Antenatal, actually. <laughs> At which point the receptionist goes, I think we need to get psychiatric down here. So there we go. Now, we've walked through our passage. Some of you may be thinking, so what? What does this actually mean for us? How do we, how do we respond? Next slide. Well, the response all comes down to how do we respond to God's silence? How do we respond to God's silence? Well, the first thing to... The first way we respond to silence is expectation. Expectation. Do we expect times of silence, times of waiting, times of frustration, times of suffering? Do we expect it? A friend of mine a while back uh, posted a quote that his, uh, his pastor had, had said in a sermon uh, at his church, and the, uh, the quote was this. If you are God's friend, suffering will not touch you. Now, is that right or wrong? It's wrong. It's wildly wrong. Wildly wrong. I was appalled, in fact. And are Christians who suffered not God's friends by virtue of their suffering? Was Zechariah not, not God's friends, you know, for enduring this long period of childlessness and all the pain and uh, agony that brought? Here's the truth. The flow of Scripture is not just one of miracle, wow, miracle, wow, miracle, wow. No, it, actually, that's not how it reads. There are times of waiting and frustration for God's people in Scripture. Abraham waited 10 years, 10 years for his miracle child, Isaac, to be born. The Israelites waited 400 years in slavery in Egypt before they were delivered. The Jews waited 70 years in Babylon for their exile to come to an end. Now you might think, well, that's the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? What about the New you know, surely it all stops then. Well, we read in Hebrews 11, verse 39, the writer of Hebrews is listing this, this series of biblical heroes, and then, it, and then they, uh, the writer says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. So waiting and frustration isn't just an occasional happenstance in Scripture. It's a motif. It's a recurring theme across all of Scripture for everyone, including God's people. Therefore, we should expect such times in our lives, times of waiting. Now, I labor this point because it's really, really important to get your expectations right because it's through the lens of our expectations that we interpret our experience correctly. Uh, next slide. Um, I went to, back in 2012, I went to Chilventa. Not heard of Chilventa? Chilventa is Europe's biggest air conditioning and refrigeration exhibition. <laughs> I was there. I was there. I will sign autographs at the end. I know you're all jealous. Um, now, um, <laughs> now, all the hotels were booked because it was so popular for people in that industry and no one else. But um, uh, all the hotels were booked. But uh, eventually, I, after searching around, I found one room left at an Ibis budget. Strange place. Um, opposite a super brothel, which is a thing in Germany, apparently. And um, the toilet was in the room. No bathroom, the toilet was in the room itself, and uh, everything's kind of plastic, so it can all be wiped down easily. Um, now, imagine two scenarios. Imagine this, you open the door into this room. You are a prisoner beginning your prison sentence. What are you thinking? You're probably thinking, 
All right, not bad. This is, this is going to be too bad. Now, same room, open the door again. You're carrying your bride across the threshold. It is your wedding night. Um, I think there'd be some tears, wouldn't there? You know. Now, same situation, different expectations. You see, expectations are crucially important to how we um, interpret our reality, our, our experience. So what are your expectations of the Christian life? Have you only known a Christian experience that is miracle, wow, miracle, wow? If that's, if that's you, uh, that's fantastic, and I'm sure you have some amazing stories to share. But uh, what if that experience suddenly came to an end? or was put on pause for an extended period of time? What if your prayers weren't answered? What if God seemed distant and, and silent? Would it shake you? Would it break you? I've seen it many times before with people. I've seen it many times. Your expectations are crucial in interpreting that and in, make, in making you a resilient, malleable, persevering Christian, not just a fair-weather one. So, what are your expectations? What if, and conversely, what if right now you are going through a long period of unanswered prayer, of struggle and suffering? What if right now God seems silent or remote or uninvolved? I'll bet the thoughts crossed your mind. I'll bet them the thoughts crossed your mind. Well, my life doesn't look much like the Bible at the moment, does it? Actually, your experience probably looks a lot more like the Bible than you realize. Periods of silence are common for God's people in Scripture. And this grounding, this is grounding and very consoling for any of us who are struggling. Believe me, it is. I won't go into detail, but as many of you know, my wife and I have been struggling with many health issues and home issue, housing issues that have come back to back to back. Um, and our prayers for many of these situations just haven't been granted yet. It is eminently consoling, believe me, to know that these experiences align with biblical reality rather than contradict it. Such experiences align with biblical reality rather than contradict it. So, secondly, next slide. Secondly, we should not equate God's silence with God's total absence. Was God silent for 400 years? Yes, in the sense that he wasn't speaking through the prophets, but had he just scarpered? It was, easy. was he up to nothing? Think about it. Between the Old and New Testaments, the Roman Empire was founded. A single political union from Scotland to Iraq you know, with Roman, amazing Roman roads covering the whole lot, with a common language, with law and order and peace that went on for centuries. That was amazing. That was amazing. And furthermore, after 400 years of science, God's people were hungry. They were famished. And when Jesus and the gospel drops into that, it was like a flaming match into, into a field of tinder. It spread like wildfire, whereas it might not have even 100 years earlier. So God's strategy was still unfolding, even though he appeared to be silent. I wonder if uh, it feels like that for us. In times of silence, do we think that God's scarpered <laughs> and isn't doing anything? Uh, many years ago, I was having a chat to my pastor at the time, um, and I was really struggling with just a whole host of things that, to me, were, were just overwhelming. overwhelming. And um, my pastor said to me, he, he had the, the, um, the guts to ask me, um, what do you think God's doing at this time? And I happened to have just, I don't know why I did it, but I think it was a couple of days before, I had just written a list, almost a bullet point list of ways I'd changed during this time of struggle. And I couldn't believe just how much had happened. You know, it was almost like it made the 10 years of being a Christian before that, 
you know, I'd grown more in that one year than I had in the previous 10. It was incredible. So I wonder if many of you have, have such experiences. Many of your mentors, the people you look up to, I bet, I bet, have had times of struggle and waiting. And the things you admire about those people, probably related, probably related to those things. So I, what does God ask of us then during these periods of silence? Are we to, does he ask us to understand this, to understand it, to comprehend it, to figure out what he's doing? No. Sometimes, well actually most times, in fact almost always, you will not understand or see what God is doing during these times. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll see it years later. Years later, you look back on it and go, ah, okay, okay, yeah. But for many of us, it will be the other side of the grave. The other side of the grave, when the big, big, big picture comes through, and we go, oh, okay, and we'll be silent <laughs> in the face of that. So, what does God ask of us? Next slide, please. Faithfulness. That's what he asked for. Simple. It's not to understand everything, it's faithfulness. Daniel 3. If you're aware of Daniel 3, we've got an episode where three guys with cool names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they are told by the emperor of Babylon, worship this other god or die, or be thrown into the furnace. And, they, and these three guys say to, uh, to the emperor, if you throw us into the furnace, God will, is able to save us. But even if, even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to your God. That phrase, even if, is so important. In the same way, we're told in verse 6 that despite his childlessness, up to that point, Zechariah, it's despite all of his all of his suffering was faithful. And that is what we, is required of us as well, faithfulness. So when God answers our prayers, and even if he doesn't, we are to stand on the facts of the gospel, that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again, that he is God, that we are saved through his love and grace. That's it. We are to stand on that. We are to hold on to that. We are to hold on with our fingernails, if that's what it takes. We are asked for dogged, Zechariah-like faithfulness. That's what he asked for. Next slide, please. Fourthly, we can have hope. Hope in times of silence. So in Luke 1, the silence is broken. God speaks. Miracles happen. There's breakthrough. A prayer that had long been given up on was answered. There's breakthrough. Sometimes, miracles do happen. This is important because in terms of biblical epochs, we are living, we are living in a... In a in, we're kind of living before the last book of the Bible. That, that's the bit we're in. <laughs> we're, in terms of biblical epochs, we are not in an eye of a hurricane. We are in the hurricane, as it were. So we are not pre-Moses or pre-Jesus. We are post-Pentecost. That's, that's where we live and move and have our being. So we live in the age of the Holy Spirit, in the age of the signs and, and wonders and healing. Um, next slide, please. Uh, just down the road. In, uh, at Woody's church, there was a, a guy there who uh, had some serious neurological um, problems. And uh, he didn't have the use of his legs. Um, I can't remember if it was one leg or both of them, but anyway, I think it was both legs. And uh, he had a large region, on, as you can see there on the left, um, a large region of his brain was just fluid, and, and, and that's what was, that was going on. Well, uh, he, he asked to be baptized, and as he came up out of the water, lo and behold, his legs were working again. 
And then just to check, they went back to, um, he went back to have a brain scan, and uh, a large region that used to be fluid is now brain tissue again. And he can walk. <laughs> um, this happened down the road in Bristol today. You know, it just makes me speechless. It's incredible. We can and we should expect extraordinary, incredible, amazing breakthroughs to happen in our midst. And they do happen. They do happen. Not always. Not as often as we're comfortable admitting. But they do happen. And we are to be, a, because we're living post-Pentecost, we're not living in the eye of a hurricane. We are to be a praying people, praying expectantly for the Holy Spirit to be moving in our midst, to be breaking through and changing lives, just as what happened to Zechariah, just as what happened to this chap here uh, down the road. Now, this is what I call hope with a little h. Hope with a little h. This is, this is hope we can have, hope that the Holy Spirit is moving and working even, even today. But even if, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't answer our prayers, what then? But then we have hope with a big H, hope with a capital H. As we shall see in a few weeks' time, when uh, I think Tessa preaches on, on the end of this chapter, when John the Baptist is born, Zechariah, curiously, barely mentions the fact that this is a miracle child. His attention wasn't operating on a personal scale. His, his attention seemed to be operating on the big picture, the big cosmic picture of God's unfolding work of salvation that was happening before his eyes. In verse 77, he says, next slide, I think, um, he will give knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin. Sorry, back one. <laughs> so he will give knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now, when that angel first appeared, where was Zechariah? He was right next to a big curtain. 34 years later, as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, that curtain came crashing down, split from top to bottom. And the presence of God, the holiness of God, was no longer barricaded from the world, no longer barricaded from people. Because Jesus said, it is finished. All of our sins are forgiven. And we can now have that knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of our sins. We can now have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. Our sins were forgiven. That is hope with a capital H. And it came down with, the, with that curtain. After nine months of muteness, Zechariah's focus wasn't on himself and his experience. As amazing as that was, it was amazing. But his focus was on the big picture. Because whether your prayers are granted or not, whether you're struggling or not, whether God seems near to you now or not, or silent or not, or distant or not, the one thing we all share, we all share, if you have this, is that history is heading one way. It's heading one way. Isn't that a strange idea? That history has a definitive end point? <laughs> it's quite extraordinary to think about. History is heading towards a restored creation, confirmed by the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. It's hard to think of any single prayer that will not somehow be satisfied, if not answered in this life, will not somehow be satisfied in that, in that ending to all things. Do you wait for a child, as Zechariah did, for life beyond your own? We are promised eternal life forever. Do you long for, 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 for children, as Zechariah did? Well, as part of the church, through our mission, through our witness, through our community, we will have spiritual children and grandchildren long beyond our own life. Do you long for health breakthrough, as me and my wife do? One day we will be given resurrection bodies that will not fail us. Do you long for a home 
as me and my wife do. One day we shall truly come home to a home imperishable. Are you frustrated that your relationship with Jesus just, you wish it was more intimate? You wish it was more intimate. In Revelation 21, we're told it will be so intimate that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He is the ultimate answer to all our unanswered prayer. So that's the false response to silence, is hope. But is it your hope? Is your hope? Is this something you own? Is this something that's going to warm your heart when it beats its last beat? I wonder. Do you have this hope? Have you allowed it to light your life with its glow? If not, we're holding an Alpha course in January. And if you want to come and find out more, if you've got questions, if you want to you know, wrestle with these things, I invite you to come and come on an Alpha course and find out more. Lastly, and very quickly, um, our final response to the silence, if I can have that slide up, one of the, our final response to the silence is silence, our silence. Zechariah was prescribed a nine-month course of silence to process and comprehend what God was doing. So it can be with us. Now, we probably won't be made mute for nine months, but the Christmas break is almost upon us, and we mustn't kid ourselves that we're not going to have time to just take a bit of time for stillness, as Will talked about last week. It's the best time in the whole year just to grab a time of silence, to bathe in these scriptures, to bathe in these promises, and to, st to hear the still, small voice of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you broke that silence and that you tore that curtain down. Thank you, Lord, that you have purchased our forgiveness through your son's blood on the cross. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can have hope when you answer our prayers and hope even when you don't. Lord Jesus, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us and to strengthen us and to help us to have dogged faithfulness no matter what our circumstances are.